What do giant mecha fighting machines, a ruthless Chinese empress, and magical aliens have in common? Probably not much, but wouldn't those elements make one hell of a story? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Siron J. Zhao. Their debut novel, Iron Widow, blends science fiction, fantasy, and Chinese history, and is out next week from Penguin Teen. Siron and I discussed the book's anime inspiration, Chinese history and mythology, and Batman's dietary preferences. Let's jump into the interview and see what Siron had to say. Welcome to the Fantasy End, Siron. Hello. Yeah, and I feel like the only appropriate way to begin this chat is to ask you about your author photo. So how did that come about? Okay, so like, it was like seven years ago, it started as a joke when I first began to like write novels seriously, even though, okay, when I started novel writing, I basically jumped in being like, I want to get published someday. And so I even like signed up to go to the Vancouver Writers Conference. And I went there. And it was just a few days ago before that where I got a cow onesie in my mail. And so I posted about going to the conference and someone was like, hey, are you wearing your cow suit there? And I was like, you know what? If I ever get published, I will take my author photo in my cow suit. And I made a whole Facebook status about this. It's like there are receipts online it's documented. And so I was just like, yeah, um, this is a promise. If I ever get published, then my author photo will be my... I will take it in my cow suit. And then seven years later, I actually did get a book deal. And I was like, you know what? I have to stay true to my Facebook statuses. And so I did. And then and then um, I made a tweet about this and the tweet went viral. So I even <laughs> like, I had to stick to it. And I can now confirm that it will be my author photo um, oh, perfect. On the jacket copy. <laughs> and my publisher was like, you know, are you sure you want to use this photo? Because it really clashes with the cover. And I was like, <laughs> I made a promise to the entire internet. Okay, you can't, I can't go back on this. Like, you guys got to support me here. <laughs> yeah, they don't understand the power of viral marketing right there. I know, right? But I think they, they appreciate the hits, even though, okay. <laughs> like, I do a lot of stuff online that, like, befuddles them, but that's fine. <laughs> I, I can imagine that. Yeah, I don't think I've yet to find a publisher that like really has their online game uh, at the top. So that oh, doesn't really? surprise me. <laughs> right, right. Oh, man, they should hire me. They honestly probably should. Uh, but yeah, should. was that like a professional photo shoot or anything that you took that picture with? Because I'm it imagining you walking into the studio with oh, the cow suit. <laughs> you know, my, my photos look professional, but they're actually all selfies taken on my phone with my phone's front camera. That is impressive. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even sure if I could use that photo because it was like taken with my front camera, right? But yeah. like they, my publisher gave me such short notice to submit the photo uh, that I was like, is this fine? And they said it was apparently fine. So yeah. Yeah, the key to taking professional looking selfies is just like lighting. Just invest in some like $75 lighting and it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, that that sounds good. Yeah, it's all taken um, with a Bluetooth remote and my phone like propped on my bed somewhere. Oh, Bluetooth remote. That's a game changer. I started doing yeah. the thing where like you try to raise your hand or you like yell the word shoot and you hope that it uh, takes the photo. Oh, my God. <laughs> See, yeah. but that messes up. You can't like do your like high model, high fashion facial expressions if you... If you yell shoot, you have that, to be like... That is not the limiting factor for me, shall we say. <laughs> no, no, oh man, you see, like, not with that attitude. You have to be like, come on. There you go. Yeah, it's a shame that people can't see the video on this because they would miss me like... Oh my God. I can't do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, and the cow suit is only one of many impressive costumes I've seen on your Instagram because you're also a pretty avid cosplayer. Uh, and I think you occasionally even design outfits to match book reviews, which is amazing. So how did you get into cosplaying? Um, I'm gay. <laughs> okay. No, no, I'm bi. But like, I find that cosplay, I think it's like um, a really like queer gateway thing because... Okay. Yeah, so no, I got into cosplay because like I was into anime and stuff, and then like cosplay was like the cool thing to do among anime fans. So I was like, oh, I wanna, I wanna like get into this. So I made cosplays to go to anime conventions, and later I realized that there is a huge overlap between like cosplay and drag. So I was, hmm. I'm also like really into RuPaul's Drag Race. I've been into it since season four, and it's like season thirteen now. So I guess, oh god, it's been nine years. 
<laughs> wow, that was even that was pre cow suit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was pre cow suit, and so yeah, I do find that cosplay is very like queer culture, and so that's why I'm really into cosplay. But nowadays. I consider myself a retired cosplayer. There's like a distinction in the cosplay community between like really like every season, like you have to list your cons and you have to plan your outfits. And nowadays I'm just like, if there's a character that I vibe with, I cosplay, um, I cosplay them. And if there isn't, then I just go in an old costume. Like I've dressed up as Wonder Woman for three Halloweens in a row just because, you know, I'm, I'm like that and I'm lazy. So nowadays I am extremely lazy and yeah, I do like book outfits. Like usually when I like promo a book on my Instagram, I like to choose an outfit that like matches because that's just how I roll. And I have like so many clothes in my closet, so why not? <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. Uh, it's a creative way of promoting books. And I definitely feel like that's uh, not a form of book promotion that I normally see. So definitely uh, differentiates yourself. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Man, and I'm not even like a pro bookstagrammer. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Bookstagram is a rabbit hole I have never fallen down because I am terrible at any kind of photography. Oh, I, yeah, um, the Bookstagrammers, they make such pretty photos and I'm just like, ugh. But like, I'm lazy, so I just take photos of myself because I can't. <laughs> so you just have these like wonderful outfits and makeup and everything designed into these photos. Yep, that's the lazy way to do it. Yeah, no, yo, I do consider <laughs> it lazy because it's like, I, I just dress up myself. But like the, the books grammars, they like painstakingly like make whole like things with the books. Like I remember once like a guy made a whole mermaid out of books and I was like, damn. That's cool. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> but like they do stuff like that. Well, I just, I consider myself pretty lazy. <laughs> gotcha. Well, is there a favorite outfit or cosplay that you've done before? Oh man, I like my Wonder Woman one just because it looks good. But I, my favorite outfit is like the Chinese Empress one that I okay. wore for my Avatar Book 3 video. But you know what? That's not my final form. I have an even more dramatic costume coming. Okay. And it'll be, yeah, I'm going to dress up as... You know what? I'm not going to spoil this. Wait, no, no, no. This is... It depends on when your video is releasing because we're having this chat a few months. Yeah, my favorite outfit is the Peking Opera one that I did. My Speaking from the future. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess uh, getting more into interview proper, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Oh, I think it was Yu-Gi-Oh. Like it all spirals back to Yu-Gi-Oh somehow because I just remember I was like, my God, I was in elementary school and then Yu-Gi-Oh came on TV and like I couldn't even follow the plot because I was so young, but I just knew that like whatever was going on on the TV, I liked it. And then I was like so in love with it. I would get up at 5 a.m. to watch the reruns. It, it was so magical. And I think Yu-Gi-Oh! is what really started me in like the science science fiction and cro uh, fantasy crossover thing, because it's very that. Like it's, it's about like ancient Egyptian pharaohs and ancient Egyptian drama, but it's also like about video games. And so that's like really intriguing like genre mashup. And that's like still seen in my style. So like Yu-Gi-Oh! somehow defined me as a person, I guess. Gotcha. Yeah, I love that kind of mashup stuff as well. Somehow I missed the Yu-Gi-Oh train and I am almost completely like no knowledge about it. I know, I think it's the show where it says you've activated my trap card. Uh, that's the only thing yes, I know. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay. I was more, I think uh, Pokemon was what got me into that kind of stuff on TV. Uh, so that was, that was my jam. Oh yeah. I also, I actually missed the Pokemon craze. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen Pokemon on TV, or if I saw it, I don't remember it. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember like back in the day when it was like the Pokemon cards were stickers and everything. I'm making myself sound like a much older person than I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so as someone who I think we've already established, uh, I'm a complete noob when it comes to anime. Do you have any recommendations on where I can get started? Okay, I was about to recommend Darling in the Franks, but you said... Um... You don't want gratuitous female okay. nudity. But so, like it... <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I actually, my goal was to watch all of Darling in the Franks before this chat, just so I could have that informed background. Um, I only had time to make it through a few episodes, but yeah, there's uh, some interesting nudity in like five minutes in. So yeah. <laughs> so yes, Iron Weirdo is like Darling in the Franks, but like without that and a much more sensible piloting position. But yeah, if you like science fiction and fantasy, I would also... I also recommend like Psychopaths. That's um, a more sensible anime to recommend. 
Okay. Yeah, so psychopath, and then I guess I would have to recommend the Miyazaki movies, even though like personally I haven't seen many of them, but like they get rave <laughs> reviews, so you know what? Because like okay, a lot of the anime that I watch is just stuff that makes no sense, <laughs> so I don't know if I should re- recommend them to beginners. Like Dragon Ball Z, how do you even explain Dragon Ball Z? You can't. Yep. <laughs> you just have to go in and like um, watch it for yourself. And then I also like Saint Seiya. But that's also like super hard to get into because it's an anime from the 80s. And if you want to see the arc that actually has good art, then you have to like there's a whole backstory that you have to learn. So same thing is also really hard for beginners. And yeah, and I guess Yu-Gi-Oh, but like also I'm not sure what Yu-Gi-Oh would like feel like if you're if you didn't watch it the first time as like a six year old. (laughs) So, like, all these shonen anime that are my favorites are just, like, I don't know if I would recommend them to beginners. But definitely start with Psychopath, because that's that's um, a sensible anime. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Hey, I'm down for uh, non-sensible as well, but uh, it's okay. more of, like, choice paralysis for me. There's so many of them out there, so it's nice to kind of have a recommendation of where to start. Okay, but, like, Darling and the Franks was really amazing for the first 16 episodes, and then it went downhill. So that's why I wrote Iron Widow. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah, um, <laughs> I really liked how Darling of the Franks played with like tropes and like there is definitely like gratuitous nudity, but then later on they like make it make sense, even though it's still like, man, you just wanted to show anime titties. <laughs> yep. Okay. Fair enough. But they try get... to justify it. <laughs> they try to justify the anime titties, and you know, I, I do applaud like the work they did. <laughs> yes, we we applaud the putting the work into anime titties. Yeah. Um, there's a pull quote for the episode. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> we applaud yeah. the anime titties. Uh, so you said in a past interview that if you could give a TED Talk on any subject, it would be why diversity in media matters. And not just in the visual representation that we all see with the actors, but also in the storytelling positions. Uh, could you elaborate on that a bit? Well, I think a lot of people, like when it comes to representation, they put too much focus on the visual aspect. When, like, if you look into the, like, uh, the production... Uh, credits like it's still like the writing staff and the production staff is still overwhelmingly white and what you get with this is that you almost you have these white writers using people of color as like puppets for their weird like racist possibly racist stories and i've seen like someone commented on my twitter that like this is like a next level yellow face or black face and i was like whoa you know what that's that's pretty accurate. Like, um, especially like since it came out, you, do you know, have you heard of that drama with um, Kim's Convenience, the TV show? Uh, no, I have not. Okay, so Kim's Convenience is this Canadian TV show about a Korean family that owns a convenience store. And recently it has aired its last season, but several of the actors came out saying that they were treated really harshly on set. And they actually found the storyline in the last season, last few seasons to be really racist because there was actually no Korean writer who was working on the show except the creator who, um, who left especially for the last season. So they were like, yeah, we brought up our concerns that the storyline was actually racist, but nobody listened to us because there were actually like no prominent writers of Korean descent, especially like, and there were like no East Asian female writers on there. So yeah, an actress who played um, the mom was especially upset about this. So essentially these actors, um, they had to play out a story that they themselves thought was racist, but the production was like, no, 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 this is like, we want to keep this. So uh, yeah, so that's the kind of situations that you have when you're only focusing on the visual representation and you don't have like the proper representation in the production staff too. And I also have a story of when my family and I went to see Aquaman in theaters and then after that entire like dramatic epic movie, it sh- the credits show director James Wan. And my dad kind of just like froze for a second. I was like, oh my God, is he Chinese? And I was like, yeah, he's Malaysian Chinese. And my dad, I think like th- that was a key moment in my dad like accepting my career as an author because finally he saw like someone Chinese like doing this grand science fiction project. Because like before, Asian creators are usually confined to like contemporary stories or like trauma stories about like um, diaspora navel gazing but like James Wan was allowed to direct this entire like adventure epic like Aquaman like Aquaman was great I I loved it so yeah that was a really powerful moment for me because I could see just like my dad taking that pause and being like wow like someone Chinese directed this big budget Hollywood sci-fi movie 
Yeah, that's amazing. And I wish we lived in a world where that kind of realization was not, you know, this huge thing and it was commonplace, but I guess uh, very baby steps. Yeah, I think um, it mattered so much to him because he was mostly against me pursuing a career in writing because he thought that I wouldn't succeed because I think he didn't see other Chinese people succeeding in the Western creative industries. And then once he saw James Wan in that credit, he was like, okay, yeah, you know what? You do have a chance. Like there are people paving the path ahead of you. Yeah. And like, meanwhile, you have what, two series contracted already and second one, even before your first one came out. So I think uh, that's an okay start to a career, I would say. (laughs) It's an okay start. We'll see though, because like anything (laughs) can happen in a writing career. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. Okay. So you almost accidentally, I think, became a legit YouTuber a year ago when you made a video criticizing the live-action Milan movie. Kind of got millions of views. So uh, you've since made quite a few fascinating videos exploring the cultural inspirations in other popular movies. Uh, So anything surprising you've learned from this, either from uh, the cultural inspiration side of things, the film industry, or just being a YouTuber? Well, I don't think I've... well. I think the main thing I've learned from being a YouTuber and like being accidentally popular is that like some people will get personally victimized by your popularity, even though like you didn't do anything to them. And then like they just hate you for no reason and they act like you like personally wronged them. And it's not something that you can really understand. And I think the greatest advice that I've ever heard was like, you know, sometimes it's about that person's insecurities and not about you. And I've just had to remember that as I navigate this like new experience of being like, quote unquote, famous, even though, like, you know, I don't really take this very seriously because like YouTube is still a side hustle for me. You know, I, I don't really think that it has changed me in any like profound way. Mostly, I prefer to hang out with people who don't care that I'm famous. <laughs> who, like, don't even watch my videos. I'm like, yes, that, that's perfect. You know what? Let's pretend that this is like not happening. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I've heard before part of the appeal of the whole author career is you can be extremely famous in certain circles, uh, but outside of like convention spheres and things like that, people normally don't recognize you. I imagine it's a little different with YouTube when you're putting your face on the screen. Yeah, I guess it is. But even though like, this has all happened to me while we're, we have been in quarantine. So it's been a really strange experience because like it doesn't really feel real to me. So it's really strange to me when people are like personally victimized by my popularity because my popularity doesn't feel real because it's all online. Well, actually, like my author career doesn't really feel real either just because, you know, the whole thing happened over like email exchanges while I've been locked up in my house for like two years now. So yeah, none of it really feels real yet. And who knows, maybe it will never feel real. Maybe this is just like me drifting through life and now. (laughs) (laughs) Getting existential there. I know, right? Are there any uh, physical tours planned for you so far? I mean, your book release is kind of right on that cusp, I feel like. Mm, So far, there are not. Okay. So we'll see. I would really like to do a tour, though, just because I think it would be fun. And especially Miss Conventions. Since I'm like a hardcore anime, well, no, I'm not a hardcore anime convention goer, but like it will be really fun to go to a convention and be like on the panelist side of things. Yeah, that that sounds like it would be super cool. Yeah, and I could book, yeah, I could book my own table. Oh, that would be so cool. Uh, that's the dream right there. As long as it's safe and, uh, you know, if we don't have this uh, world on fire around us. Yeah, hopefully. I think um, this pandemic has just made me really disappointed in governments and people in general. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, I, yeah. no, I can't take any disaster movie seriously when like a disaster happens and everyone's like, okay, now we got to work together. Turns out we can't work together. Yeah. I am curious uh, if we're going to see a change in like disaster fiction and movies and things like that, or if we're just not going to have as much anymore if it hits too close to home. Well, I think that it will be a lot more cynical from now on, like the disaster movies, because man, the scientists, they like single-handedly carried us out of this. Like, while everyone else was, like, not listening. And even now, there are a lot, there are people, like, not listening and just being, like, assholes for no reason. Like, just yesterday, I saw a story about a guy who, like, shot two people, like, one of them a cashier, because um, the cashier was like, hey, sir, can you, like, please put a mask on? And he somehow got so offended that he went back to his car and got a gun out and then shot the cashier and now she's dead. And just, like, why? Why? Like, why are you so bothered by the fact that you have to wear a mask? 
yeah, that's just absolutely horrible and unfortunately not surprising at this point. Yeah, and I just don't understand it. Yeah, I live in the South in the United States, so oh, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm very familiar with that kind of attitude. Oh, man, like, where does that attitude come from? Like, I just don't understand it. I have no idea. Um, and I hope I never find out. <laughs> but okay, so uh, slightly happier topics. Yeah, so I think it's fair to say you're a little bit of a Chinese history enthusiast, though you do make it clear online that you're not like a super expert or anything. But even so, you clearly know at least a thousand times as much as someone like me. So what are some of the things that you wish more people knew about Chinese history? Um, well, this is something that's more surprising, like it surprises me that people don't know, but like why people kept long hair. And I, I've said this so many times in my videos, but like it's because of like Confucianism. So everybody in ancient China, like, well, mo most of the Han majority, it was like the custom to keep long hair. And then in the last dynasty that kind of like fell apart because the Manchu rulers, the Manchu minority became um, the rulers. And they were like, hey, now you got to like shave the front half of your hair if you're a guy. And so that was, there was this whole drama. There was like a lot of like murder involved where huh. the Manchus like killed a lot of people who refused to um, abide by that order. Uh, but eventually that kind of like broke the thing where like hair is sacred and whatever. And also like it really surprised me when people are confused to why like everybody has long hair in historical Chinese dramas. Like, that's one of those things where, like, if you're a part of a certain culture, then, you know, that's intuitive to you. But then if you're, like, coming from an outside in, you're like, oh, what's going on? Like, they're all pretty, but I don't understand. This is really impractical, especially when you're fighting. But, <laughs> and I also wish that people knew a lot more about ancient Chinese women who aren't Empress Wu, Wu Zetian. Because, you know, as much as I love Wu Zetian, and, like, I even wrote a whole book, like, multiple books inspired by her. Um, she's really overrepresented when it comes to, like, ancient Chinese women. And I wish people knew more about other badass Chinese women, like Fu Hao, the first, this, like, queen general um, of the Shang Dynasty, or, like, Queen Dowager Xuan, who is the great-great-grandma of the first emperor of China, I believe. Um, I might be, like, messing up my great numbers there, but, like, she was also a really badass female ruler. And yeah, I do plan on doing videos on them someday. But yeah, the, um, Chinese history is full of these like really awesome women. And it's not just like Wu Zetian all the time. Yeah, uh, that's great. Maybe uh, future books from you <laughs> from yeah, these different definitely, people. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> there you go. Um, and yeah, so another thing is I did see in the past, you said that you used to be snobbish about what was popular in the current publishing market, uh, but you aren't anymore. So how do you feel about the current market now and what changed your mind on that? Um, now I love what's coming out. And I think um, part of the reason I was so snobbish about like, especially young adult is just because I felt that it was too um, white and straight. But now that I'm like way more involved in the community, I can actually discover these books that are like not white and straight that are written by authors of color and like queer authors. And now I like, I love what's, what's been coming out and like people are so creative and like, there's so many books I want to read, but like, I don't have time and ah, uh, and then. So now I have like too many books that I want to read that is stressing me out. So now, yeah, I am totally down with the market. And I do feel like um, if you want to be an author and yet you're like scoffing at the stuff that's being published in your target genre, then that's not really the right attitude to have. Yeah, I mean, what was there? Uh, I'm forgetting how long ago it was at this point because time is fake. Uh, maybe two years ago, there was like a big thing on Twitter where editors were like, please, I'm begging you, if you want to be published, just read like one book from the last five years in your oh, genre yeah. and, <laughs> and everyone was like oh offended at that. <laughs> it's like why can't we read the classics why not lord of the rings that's clearly the pinnacle of the fantasy genre oh my god like i'm begging you read something other than lord of the rings like oh god especially like oh god please read read the stuff by authors <laughs> who aren't white and i also like i'm really annoyed when people make the assumption that adult fantasy and science fiction is like not as diverse as ya which is just not true anymore and i don't think it's like ever been that true because i think it's just like the really white stuff that gets popular but if you actually like look well i guess you have to look for yourself and when people say that oh this genre is too white or too popular it's be they're talking about the books that get popular and they get visible but like, if you actually make the effort to go and seek out stuff, it's so you can find like all sorts of diverse things. Yeah, I think uh, a big struggle for me is I'm interested because obviously there's so much amazing stuff coming out right now, um, and it's it feels more diverse than it's been in the past. But also is like other than keeping up with that because that's a, 
big enough task right there is like finding the works that came out 10, 20, 30 years ago that were also by these uh, incredible diverse authors that maybe slip through the cracks and it's kind of hard to find those. Oh yeah, it's definitely and definitely true. And also like <laughs> like my to be read pile just like keeps growing every day. So like it's really yeah, it's a struggle if I want to like look back at the old works. Yeah, if you're not being slowly crushed to death under the endless pile of your to be read list, uh, are you really trying hard enough? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Now I'm just like, oh, God. Okay, well, uh, we've been talking for long enough without digging into your work. So you're here to discuss Iron Widow. So do you have a pitch for us? Oh, yeah. So my standard pitch for Iron Widow is that it is a Pacific Rim meets The Handmaid's Tale reimagining of Wu Zetian, the only female emperor in Chinese history. Yeah, and uh, that's a hell of a pitch. <laughs> I think uh, the two things that initially turned me on to that were one, that amazing pitch, and then two, the cow suit picture. So, <laughs> Oh my God, the cow suit picture. Um, but yeah, so I'm curious, what's the origin behind that story for you? Like why this story of all the stories you could have written? Okay, so this story was actually developed out of my disappointment with the anime Darling in the Franks. Cause like for the first 16 episodes, it was like truly mind blowing. One of the best animes I've ever seen. It used like, it really like made me think about the use of like mecha as like giant mechas as a literary device, especially a literary device to like explore adolescence. And then it kind of like didn't go in the direction that people wanted after episode 16, like lots of people, when they see my pitch, they're like, they're like, oh, hey, this is just Darling in the Franks. And I'm like, yeah, I wrote it because I was disappointed with Darling in the Franks. And the response is always, always, you know what? That's fair. And, you know, so that's the reputation that Darling in the Franks has with like anime watchers. Like when I tell them that this is basically a Darling in the Franks fix it fic featuring Chinese history, they're like, that's completely fair. I understand why you did it. <laughs> I love that. So that's the origin of, oh, yeah. Yeah, it started especially in like a single conversation with me and my friend Rebecca Schaefer, who is the author of the Not Even Bones trilogy. And so I was complaining about Darling of the Franks to her. And then I was like, oh, but they should have done this instead or like this and this. And then slowly, like my my like my desires for just like see the anime be different. It turned into like its own thing that eventually like spiraled into Iron Widow just throughout that one conversation. So I like I owe a lot to my friend Rebecca. Yeah, I love when there's kind of like a clear origin story for something, uh, especially when you're so passionate about what that is uh, compared to a lot of people are like, I don't know, it just kind of came to me eventually. Oh, yeah. I even, okay, right then, I knew that this book was going to make it. So I saved screenshots of that conversation. And I just like saved it on my computer because I was like, you know what, this book, I'm going to write it and it's going to be the book that takes me there. And it did turn out to be the book that took me there. Yeah, that's awesome. Especially because I guess, yeah, that being the book that takes you there, you had at least one other work that you were uh, on before that, right? I think you said you've been writing it for three or so years before you scrapped it and went to Iron Widow. Yeah, it was um, it was the Sapphire Age and it was a book about Asian sci-fi mermaids. And that book was cool. And then I was even on sub with it while I was writing Iron Widow. But like Iron Widow as a concept and like the whole story and world was just like so vivid in my head that I was like, you know what? I can't work on the Sapphire Age anymore. I have to write this book. And my agent was like, oh man, okay. I guess like, I guess. <laughs> and you know what? But it all worked out. So you know what? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, well, okay. Let's talk about, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this. I apologize. Wu Zetian. Yeah, Wu Zetian. Okay. The historical inspiration behind your book's main character. So who was she exactly and why should we know her name? Well, she was the only female emperor in Chinese history, and that's like reason enough. Like and also it's especially inspiring because she was not only not only female emperor, she was the emperor during like China's golden age, the Tang Dynasty. And so she ruled over China basically when it was at its peak like Chinese civilization when it was at its peak. So she wasn't just like, and she ruled like um, for many, many decades. And then even she was even emperor for like 15 years. So she wasn't just like, oh, she became emperor for like three months. And like <laughs> she counts, she technically counts. She was not a technicality in any way. Like she was a full-fledged emperor with her own dynasty, the Zhou dynasty. And that, that's just so inspiring because... Chinese society, it was heavily influenced by Confucianism, which really enforces rigid social roles and especially rigid gender roles. So like women were not expected to be able to rule. And there was even this saying that people used against her, like, 
if a hen crows at dawn, then there's going to be disaster to the family. And then she was the hen that crowed at dawn. So people were like against her, but like she used all sorts of like tricks and like even turned like Confucianism around. Like she used Confucianism and its expectation for children to obey their parents to force her four emperor's sons to obey her. <laughs> like, oh, like four of her sons like took turns. Well, no, actually, no, it was only three of her sons took turns being emperor before she like disposed them all and finally became emperor herself. So like, yeah, she was willing to sacrifice her children for her ambitions. <laughs> okay. Is that like a literal sacrifice? Did she kill them? Oh, yeah, she killed two of them. Okay. <laughs> well, and she killed a few of her grandchildren, too. Like, I went into their tombs, and it was super chilly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, random tidbit. I went into her grandchildren's tombs, and it was super spooky. And I, 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 I could, yeah, tombs are creepy. I went in, and it was just so unnaturally cold. And I was like, you know what? I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> yep, not uh, taking risks with that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so... You also said you consulted a lot with your parents and grandparents about kind of the rural Chinese-inspired setting uh, that we see in the beginning of Iron Widow, since they came from a rural village. So what sort of details did they fill in for you? Well, this isn't a detail that I had the room to put in, but like they would be like, oh yeah, back then we were used to, in the winter, we would like pick bugs out of our clothes and then they would like throw them and we were throwing them into the fire and then it would make these popping noises. And that was like one of the like <laughs> main entertainments for us during winter. And there's just re- this really big, like rural, rural urban divide in China. And so you could go to from a city in Shanghai, which is like one of the most metropolitan cities, but it coexists with like tiny rural villages in like the mountains of Yunnan or whatever. And I think in an, a lot of like exploited countries and countries that don't have that aren't aren't as urbanized. It's an interesting, interesting, interesting to see. Like they went directly from like having no internet to having like wireless internet, and they skipped a landline stage. So you have you can see lots of people in like these tiny rural villages, just like playing on their phones, and that's what a lot of like the rural Iron Widow setting came from. Because like even though they're in this rural village, they're still like watching stuff on their tablets and stuff, and like that's directly inspired by modern rural China, and. I watched a lot of documentaries about like rural life in China to like get an image of this setting in my head, and also I drew on my own experience um, living in rural China because I did um, have experience living there for like some part of my life, and I just remember, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I remember, like um, not having flushable toilets, I guess. And, but like this, is a lot of this stuff that couldn't make it into the actual book because I was so crunched for word count, but. Yeah, so like Iron Widows, some people say, like I say it's inspired by ancient China, but like technically the vision of rural China that's in the book is like, it's modern, like it's inspired by modern China. Um, And okay, so I want to dig a little bit more into that because I know uh, you definitely cut a lot out of your book, some for word count, some for genre reasons. Uh, So what kind of stuff did you have to cut out that you wish you could have left in? Um, pussy eating. <laughs> there was a scene where she gets her pussy eaten, and then my agent was like, Shira, this is young adult. You can't have that. That was like, fine. And then I cut it. Yeah. And as we all know, heroes don't eat pussy. Oh, man. Ugh. You know, I just don't believe it. I do not believe that Batman does not eat pussy. You know what? Because Selena Kyle will never be with a man who doesn't eat the pussy, okay? So... Like, this is just slander against Batman's character, and it makes me very upset because it indirectly, like, slanders all the women he's ever been with for, like, more than one day. Because you know what? You know that he's got um, the pussy-eating skills learned from, like, some ancient tribe on on his world travels or something. But I think the bigger question is, does Batman eat ass? Probably. (laughs) Probably, you know? Let's go. So, yeah, I had to cut the pussy eating. And then there was also, like, really fun scenes with, like... I had to cut a lot of, like, the slice-of-life scenes. Because, okay, my final draft, my final first draft was 118 words. I had to, like, do everything I could to crush it down to 99,000 words for submission. And then after it sold, I added back, like, 5,000 words to the disappointment of my editors. But I was like, you know what? These 5,000 words, I really want them in there. So they wanted me to cut it down to like 95,000. And I was like, that is not happening. I'm sorry. So the final word count is like 105,000 or something. But yeah, I have so many bonus scenes and most of them are just like really funny slice of life scenes. 
which I guess fine. It doesn't really fit with um, the action action-packed, intense book that is Iron Widow, but I really like those like fan-fiction-y slice of life scenes, you know? So probably I'll release um, the extra scenes as bonus material. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, something like put up on your site, or do you have a Patreon or something that people could get those oh, from? Oh, yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. But I'll probably like make them a pre-order incentive. Ah, yeah, that's smart. I love all the pre-order incentives that have been going on. I don't know if those have always happened, but with the pandemic and everything, I feel like there's more swag. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, media play and by association, social media kind of have a big part in Iron Widow. From the treatment of the individual Chrysalis pilots like these superheroes to uh, selling teenage girls uh, to the fantasy of becoming a pilot's Iron Princess, there's kind of the implication of established fandoms. So since you've mentioned participating in anime fandoms, were there any fandomy aspects in the world building you came up with but either weren't able to include or worked in there and maybe some people don't notice them? Oh man. So one of the cut scenes was a scene where Zotian and then two other female pilots go to this like female only marketplace and they spot like one of these photo booths that allow them to like take photos with the male pilots. So you know like like those Asian photo booths? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like there was that and it was um yeah, it, that that was a scene for sure. <laughs> but so I do regret not being able to put more of that into the book but yes it's definitely like very inspired by fandom and the social media like discourse is also like a lot derived heavily from like mo- like the state of social media in modern china because it's it, like the celebrity culture is very very like pervasive in china and like it's so much more pervasive than like stan culture in western media it's almost like because in china it's strange because everybody knows that the trends are like bought with money and so like these big media production companies, they have a lot of power and they basically like shove their celebrities into your face. And then the moment that the celebrities are not like, like they, they can't draw as much of an attention anymore. These celebrities are basically just discarded. But yeah, celebrity culture is um, very like, I would say that it is pretty toxic in China, but it's, um, it's and like a lot of that I put into like the treatment of pilots in Iron Widow. Yeah, uh, definitely see some direct parallels there. And so... Uh, I have a friend who is very proud of uh, their, I don't know if this is an established thing or if this is something that they came up with, but the ship name for uh, the main poly trio we have. So I hope I'm saying this correctly, Wu Li Gao Chao, or su- Superior oh, yeah. Military Wu Force. Wu Li Gao Chao, yeah. Man, that, that is brilliant. And I guess, yes, that can be their Chinese name, but their English name, I've decided, they're called the Iron Triangle. Okay, I love that. Yes, strongest shape. Yes, it's, it is the strongest shape. Illuminati. Yeah, and I I do appreciate how uh, you directly addressed that a lot of times when people say triangles like that, it's just kind of like two sides of the triangle, not three sides of the triangle. So well done. I wish wish more books took that route. Me too. I was surprised that like people were shocked that I actually did it and published um, in a published book because I would think that it's something more pervasive just because like people ask for it all the time. And yet I'm like one of the first YA debuts to like do that. So yeah, it's it surprises me. But also like, man, a polyamorous triangle is so fun to write just because like they're like it's basically three ship dynamics in one. Like what's not to love? Yeah, you have so many more options there. I don't know. It kind of seems like the thing that uh, maybe there haven't been a lot of them in published books so far. And so people assume because there haven't been, there isn't a desire for them. And it's like kind of this self-affirming cycle. Yeah, maybe, maybe. So hopefully that more more people will write them because they're so fun to write and they're so fun to read too. Yep. Because like once you have that, like you remove the expectation that like she has to choose, then suddenly the whole thing becomes like open to all sorts of like things that anything could happen now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that element of surprise is also just, I feel like good fiction writing. Uh, so that's always interesting as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so several of your characters have counterparts in famous Chinese history or mythology, quite a few of them uh, with some cameos as well. So when creating this world, what was your process of deciding which characters to pull from history and legend and which ones to just sort of make from scratch? Well, I think um, basically every named character is inspired by like some sort of historical figure just because... I don't even know why I did. I think I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to do this. There's going to be like Chinese history all-stars. Like, Wu Zetan is here, so might as well put Li Shiming in there too as one of her <laughs> love interests. And then just because I wanted to have Zhuge Liang in there. So I, these are basically like Easter eggs for people who like grew up with Chinese history. And 
the characters I had to create from scratch was like mostly female characters, even though that, yeah, like Uzetian's mom, her mom is definitely not her mom for history because like Uzetian's mom in history was also like this badass lady. But like in the book, I had to make her for thematic reasons. I had to make her like really weak willed and like just like that. And her family, oh, Uzetian's family from history was not abusive at all. So, like, I preemptively apologize to her historical family, but for thematic reasons, in the book, I made her family very abusive. And deciding which characters to pull from history, I just thought of, like, hmm, which ones are the most iconic? Sure. And also, I have this obsession with, like, Chinese emperors. They fascinate me. So, all the pilots are actually Chinese emperors and their empresses. Oh, like, I love that. All the emperors, yeah, all the pilot couples are iconic couples like um, Yang Jian and Du Gu Chie Luo, um, the pilots of the White Tiger. Not a lot of people know about them, but they were definitely, yes, a power couple too in like the Sui Dynasty. I love that. Yeah, I am uh, not a history buff whatsoever. So I think I missed a lot of that, but I love just the concept of pulling all of this history into a new story. Yeah, that was that's just me being self-indulgent. Like, I'm not trying to be deep while doing that. It was just me being self-indulgent. If you can't write something a little bit self-indulgent, what's the point? I know. Yeah, and that's actually my number one advice that I give to aspiring writers. Be self-indulgent. Write what you want to read. And don't try to be like, don't try to like change the industry or like write something groundbreaking. Just write what you want to read. Because like what you want to read, probably other people want to read it too. Yeah. And I imagine it makes it a lot easier to maintain some sort of passion for it when you're working on a novel, because it's not the kind of thing that happens overnight. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, uh, you have mentioned before that the story would have been a little bit different if written directly for a Chinese audience rather than a more Western audience. So could you elaborate on that? In what ways would it have been different? Um, I don't really think it would be that different, I'll, but I would definitely use different names just because, you know, it's very people sometimes like when they look at the names, they probably, probably, I actually worry about how Chinese readers would receive Iron Widow just because, you know, I, I didn't even change the names from the historical figures for most of the character inspirations. Just because, just because I was like, you know, why bother? If this is written for a Western audience, most of them are not going to know these historical figures. So might as well, I'm going to familiarize them with these names. So they'll be curious and like search these names up and discover more about the historical origins. But... It would be it would they would have different names and probably I would do other stuff like the writing style would definitely be different like I would like write it to more of a Chinese writing style instead and it would definitely be longer just because Chinese <laughs> novels are so long and they're like they're usually serialized online and so yeah there are those differences there yeah I've heard a lot of good things about Chinese web novels uh, haven't taken the plunge because I guess there's not all that many necessarily available in English but I'm hoping to find some mm-hmm Oh yeah, and I think the character ages will be different. Will be they will be older for sure, just because publishing is so confined to like age genres. Yeah, and like the style of writing that I wanted to write was definitely YA. So I had to like keep the characters around like the eighteen mark, like keep the characters in their teens. But in Chinese novels, you could have like this style of writing and have the characters be like twenty eight. Yeah. And so there's a lot of like Chinese novels and Chinese dramas out there that have like very anime vibe, but the characters are allowed to be like full grown adults. So definitely if I was writing this for a Chinese audience, the characters would be just like 24 or something. Gotcha. Or I mean, you mentioned 28. 28 feels like a good number. I'm not biased at all for that being my age, but yeah. (laughs) But yeah. And I mean, for me, I don't know if this is all that common or not, but I'm not a visual reader at all. So I don't really picture the characters at all. So they could have been 24 easily for me because I'm not really seeing them as teenagers. Oh yeah, but you know, it's fine. Like you, people can interpret the book um, however they want, but like I just had to make them 18 because of publishing's confinement. Yeah, gotcha. Um, well, okay, so I'd love to hear about any future projects that you're able to tell us about at the moment. I know there's at least the one we sort of mentioned at the start, uh, your upcoming middle grade series. I think it's called Zachary Ying. 
Yeah, Zachary Yin and the Dragon Emperor, and I'm in I'm in like heavy editing stage for that book, and I hope that by the time this um, comes out, the the cover will have been revealed, and the cover is stunning. I am so happy with it. Like I, when the cover was first emailed to me, I just like stared at it for like several hours, just because my God, it is it is so beautiful. And then especially when you put the cover and the Iron Widow cover side by side, I can I can say that there is a dragon on the Zachary Yin cover, and okay. uh, main t color is blue. So you have like this blue dragon on Zachary Yin, and this like red vermilion bird. On Iron Widow, and they just like they. Oh my God, I'm. I feel so lucky to be able to have these two covers from like two different publishers, but yet they seem to be like match each other. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And uh, yeah, your Iron Widow cover is excellent. I love it, and I also love that your uh, photoshopped Yu-Gi-Oh version of it has kind of been making oh, their yeah. rounds. Oh my God! <laughs> so I was actually given a choice of like several different poses that I wanted. Um, they proposed Zotian to be in, and I, as soon as I saw that pose, I was like, Oh my God, she looks like a Yu-Gi-Oh character. Can we please like pick that as the pose? And they actually did, and I'm so happy about it. But yeah, Zachary Yin is like basically Chinese Percy Jackson meets Yu-Gi-Oh. So there's this like Chinese American kid who has his AR, like um, artificial, no, not artificial reality, augmented reality gaming headset. He it gets possessed by the first emperor of China who like nags him into going on this like adventure across China. So, and he goes home and like discovers his homeland and all the like history and culture there for the first time in his life. And it's basically an excuse to like make you visit a bunch of like different significant Chinese historical sites and introduce you to like um, famous Chinese artifacts. Like all the artifacts in the novel are real. So it, it's just like me being self-indulgent again, but you know what? Like, I hope that like Chinese diaspora children especially will really like the book and get interested in this sort of stuff. Yeah, no, that sounds like it has kind of a broad appeal as well, especially, again, with another very interesting uh, pithy pitch that you can kind of rattle off in a sentence. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess that, yeah, that's basically my brand now. It's just um, <laughs> absurd, um, self-indulgent books. <laughs> hey, uh, there are a lot worse brands to have than that. That sounds like a pretty great one. That's true. That's true. Um, so are there any books or anything you've been reading and enjoying lately that you can recommend? Okay, so I actually read this like a year ago, but I really have to recommend The First Sister by Lyndon yes! Lewis. It's um, sci-fi <laughs> that came out. Oh, have you read it? I have, yeah. I've actually had Lyndon on the podcast before. Oh my god, it is so mind-blowing, isn't it? Yes, like, love it. Good god, it really just challenges. Like, even though like you may believe that, um, yeah, it really just challenges your like perception and like assumptions about gender and like the plot twists were just like mind blowing. Like somehow it's one of those plot twists that did like it didn't it doesn't come out of nowhere. Like all of the foundation is laid out, and the moment like the plot twist happens, like everything makes sense. Like it was all like it just oh it's an absolutely brilliant book, and I cannot recommend it enough. And I wish that more people would read it. And also I have, I'm reading several advanced reader copies that people have sent me. And so there's the ones were meant to find by Joan. It was a New York Times bestseller. And there's also Jade Fire Gold by June Tan. And also Six Crimson Cranes by Elizabeth Lim, one of my favorite authors. So I'm reading those right now, and I wish I had more time to read just because oh, God, there's so many good books. And, oh, also there's She Who Became the Sun by Amazing Shelley book, Chan. yeah. Yeah, oh my God, I, I'm reading that too. And I, I, God, I just wish I had more time, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually talking to Shelly tomorrow about that book, so that should be fun. Oh my God, awesome. <laughs> like whenever, when I first saw that pitch, I was like, oh my God, female Julian Zhang, Please, I need this right now. Yep, yep, love it. Uh, if this is the kind of trend that can continue in the future in publishing, I am all here for it. Yeah, I joked on Twitter that soon we'll be able to like assemble an entire timeline of uh, Chinese history <laughs> using uh, <laughs> Chinese historical retellings that's being published right now in English. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so one way I kind of like to close out these interviews is just asking you, what is one thing you are excited about right now? can be absolutely anything. Um, I guess my book releasing soon. <laughs> and even though it's kind of nerve wracking, just because as of the recording of like, as of the time that we're recording this, it's like a hundred days till publication. And it's just, wow, like I'm about to be a published author, I guess. 
Yeah, so that's the one like most exciting thing in my life right now. And the other thing is, soon I'll be able to see my friends again that I haven't seen for like two years. Yep. <laughs> because of this <laughs> pandemic. And I'm going like a little bit stir crazy in my house. So it will be really nice to just be able to see old friends. Like they're old friends now just because I haven't seen them in two years. <laughs> yeah, we, we've all gotten a lot older in the last two years. <laughs> yeah, and I'm really excited to be able to finally travel again because I want to see so many places. And now I finally have the means to. Um, so I want to go to like Southeast Asia. I want to go to Europe again. And just it will be really fun because I can actually now I have the platform to be able to to just go on Twitter and be like, hey, like who's in Jakarta right now? Like come meet me at this cafe. And like people will actually come because like, just because like my platform, there are people from all over the world that it, it like, it shocks me. But it's it would be really fun to just travel the world and be like, hey guys, come meet up with me. So like, that's something I definitely want to do. And especially, yeah. And especially, yeah, conventions too. I want to go back to them and finally, like, be on the other side of things, be a panelist and be um, a tabler. And yeah, so many exciting things that we can do once everybody yep. gets the damn vaccine in their arms. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, living in uh, southern United States, it's amazing how apparently overnight everyone got the vaccine as soon as they said that the masks was no longer required. Oh my god. Why do people hate masks so much? It's I just a know. goddamn piece of fabric over your face. Yeah. But also, like, like it's inspiring, but it's also disheartening, like, how fast Joe Biden was able to get the vaccines to everyone. And it kind of makes you think that, like, if the Trump administration was actually competent, that this could have ended months ago. Like, they had the means, but they were just not willing to do it. And, you know, that's just... Ugh. That's really frustrating to me to think about like what could have been if there was actually a competent government. Yep. Like, yeah. Yeah, if only. Well, that I guess just makes the fact that hopefully things are starting to get a little better all that much more exciting now. Oh, yeah. Thank God. Yeah, well, I uh, think that's pretty much a wrap. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, Siren. This has been an absolute delight. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. This has been so fun. And like your questions were very thought provoking and you definitely did your homework. So I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> I only regret that I wasn't able to find your uh, singing YouTube videos. Oh, no, no, you'll never find it. <laughs> You can find Siran J. Zhao on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram as Siran J. Zhao, or at their website, siranjzhao.com. Pacific Rim meets The Handmaid's Tale in this sci-fi reimagining of China's only female emperor. With a pitch like that, you can't tell me you're not intrigued by Iron Widow. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com, or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We've got exclusive episodes, video interviews, and more. Or take a moment of your time to leave us a review online. It means so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show to catch all our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time. <laughs>